Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Monday, April 27th. In today's news, Debbie Burks warns that social distancing will probably remain in place through the summer. President Trump calls reports he might fire Alex Azar fake news. And Dutch teenagers sail across the Atlantic after getting stranded in the Caribbean. But first, the big idea. Viruses are great equalizers. No one is safe. But as George Orwell once put it, some are more equal than others. And COVID-19 is devastating African-American communities across America. As Georgia reopens, many of its poorest black residents in rural areas cannot get tested, let alone quality treatment. Cheryl Means already has lost so much to this invisible enemy burning through her hometown. Her mother and her aunt died within days of each other. She has a tightness in her chest, and she's scared she might be next. But Cheryl can't get a test. Even now, six weeks into this national emergency, with the death toll still climbing in southwest Georgia, and her kin still sick from the coronavirus, even though, as a home health care worker, She's at high risk for exposure. Cheryl, who's 51, isn't displaying enough symptoms to get the required doctor's referral. If she wanted, though, because she's in the state of Georgia, she could get her hair done and her nails done, and she could go eat out at a restaurant or go to the Cineplex. The governor invited businesses to reopen, despite local leaders, public health experts, and residents like Cheryl insisting that the state is not ready. Of the 20 counties in America with the most deaths per capita from COVID-19, five are in southwest Georgia, including Early County, where Cheryl lives. This area is part of what's known as the Black Belt. In the state's hardest hit places, African Americans make up the vast majority of the population, and about 30% of residents live in poverty. They've struggled for years with a severe lack of access to health care. Some of these counties have no doctors, no hospitals, and a high percentage of uninsured residents. The facilities and physicians already were stretched so thin. Then came the fast-moving, super-infectious coronavirus, perfectly primed to devastate an already vulnerable population. When Brian Kemp, the Republican governor, announced he was lifting restrictions on businesses, a lot of African-American residents in this region felt cast off like they were being told once again to fend for themselves. Demetrius Young, a city councilman in Albany, the center of Georgia's epidemic, said that when the governor opened up businesses, it was African-Americans who were required to go back to work at the salons and the movie theaters and the restaurants. He said they're desperate for cash and, quote, for black folks, it's like a setup. Are you trying to kill us? Now, this isn't a rural problem or a Georgia problem. This is a national problem and a national outrage. Let me tell you about what's happening here in D.C. as a point of illustration. The intensive care unit at Inova Hospital in upscale Alexandria, Virginia, has a lot of empty beds. And doctors who are prepared for a rush of coronavirus patients that has yet to hit the largely white suburb. But less than a dozen miles away, just across a river, at the Adventist Healthcare Hospital in Fort Washington, Maryland, the ICU is full 
and employees treat coronavirus patients in medical tents in the parking lot. Paramedics across Prince George's County are summoned daily to help people struggling to breathe. And funeral home directors in PG County are searching for more places to store bodies because they are out of room. Prince George's, one of the nation's wealthiest majority black counties, has reported the most coronavirus infections and some of the highest death tolls in the Washington region. In the hardest hit neighborhoods, African-American and Latino residents make up more than 70 percent of households. The grim statistics mirror the national data showing black Americans are much more likely than white Americans to be infected and more likely to die of the coronavirus. Officials say the pandemic has hit the county of 900,000 especially hard because many of the residents are frontline workers exposed daily to the virus and Prince Georgians disproportionately suffer from underlying health conditions that make the virus more deadly. The 174 county residents who have died of COVID-19 as of today include educators, a maintenance worker, a prominent artist, and a pastor. One of the youngest victims was a 27-year-old cashier at the giant supermarket in Largo. Sean Boynes, a former Air Force captain, died of COVID-19 at 46. Nicole Boynes of Bowie, Maryland, lost her husband, Sean, to covid He had asthma, but he kept going to work at a pharmacy in Greenbelt, which is in the county. She remembers, quote, his comment to me was, I am the only pharmacist. Now he's gone. Nearly 14% of adults in Prince George's have diabetes. 36% are obese and 64% of the county's Medicare beneficiaries suffer from hypertension rates vastly above nationwide and statewide averages. There are fewer hospital beds and primary care doctors than in every neighboring jurisdiction, and that means residents are less likely to treat medical problems early. I got my start at the Washington Post back in 2008 as a reporter in our Prince George's Bureau, and this is a county that has spent vastly less on public health efforts than its wealthier, whiter neighbors for several decades. Now, let's transition and talk about what's happening up in New York City. In the overwhelmingly black South Bronx, life for most people has become a waiting game. Waiting and waiting and waiting for anything and everything. The sun had barely risen one day last week over East 149th Street in the South Bronx when Edward Halls, 70, got in line. He had seen how long the line was the day before and realized that life now requires a plan for waiting in line. A line of 32 people stretched out from the front door of the bank where the computers were still down, and Ed was sitting in his folding chair, watching his neighborhood come to life. Across the street, a line was forming at the pharmacy. A few doors down, the line was growing at the credit union. Around the corner, people were lining up for the bus, for the lottery, and for the check cashers. Two months into this crisis, this is what life has become in one of the poorest and hardest-hit neighborhoods in America. A life of lines. In a nation that has revered ambition, hustle, and individualism, the moment was one that called for the sort of acceptance, patience, and ego sublimination summoned by the words of Nelson Rivera, a school custodian standing behind a home health care aide, standing behind a bus driver, standing behind a woman shaking her head, to get into a stop-and-shop convenience store. What can you do, he said. 
what can you do? The line was all there was. Across the South Bronx, people were lining up this weekend for various food pantries, at a community center, at the Catholic Church, and at the Bronx River Houses, a public housing complex of nine brick buildings where the daily announcement comes over a loudspeaker in a courtyard that food is coming and people run out of the brick towers and other apartment buildings in the surrounding neighborhood to wait in line for hours to get some food. A few doors down, the line outside the wholesale liquor store was at 54 people and growing. A single mom was behind a postal worker who was behind a, another healthcare worker who'd just finished another shift and had been waiting in line for 30 minutes to get a bottle of Grey Goose. Around the corner, the line for the Aldi discount grocery store was 71, then 72, then 73, and the sun was setting. Jay Lewis, a dance instructor who hadn't even eaten breakfast yet, looked behind him at all the faces, and he said, quote, This is kind of how I imagined the end times to be. Someone was smoking. Someone else was standing too close. Someone was walking up and down the line, hawking Advil and a leave for cash. Some kids rode by on bikes and popped wheelies. Some pigeons fought over a scrap of bread. Meanwhile, the line grew longer, and it inched toward the next strip of yellow tape, the next orange cone. A few feet more, a few minutes and then hours more, the sun setting, and time passing. This is what the American experience has become for millions of African Americans. And that is the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar as we start what will be another hellish week in America. Number one, Debbie Burks, the coordinator of the White House Coronavirus Task Force, warned on the Sunday shows that social distancing will probably remain in place through the summer. It was the latest instance of conflicting signals coming not just from state and federal leaders, but also from within the Trump administration in the midst of this pandemic that has now claimed the lives of more than 54,000 Americans. Last week, Vice President Pence predicted confidently, quote, we will largely have the coronavirus epidemic behind us by Memorial Day weekend. President Trump's daily briefings may be coming to an end sooner, or at least they'll probably look and feel different. We did a comprehensive analysis of all the briefings that Trump had. He's spoken for more than 28 hours in the 35 briefings about the coronavirus since March 16th. Our analysis shows that in all of that time, Trump has spent two hours attacking other people directly, 45 minutes praising himself, and just four and a half minutes expressing condolences for coronavirus victims or their families. Four and a half minutes out of 28 hours. He spent twice as much time promoting the unproven anti-malarial drug that the FDA warned on Friday is dangerous and potentially life-threatening to take. Trump has also said something demonstrably false or misleading in nearly a quarter of his prepared comments or answers to questions during the briefings. Trump's freewheeling approach ended in a political crisis when the president dangerously suggested at Thursday night's briefing that injecting bleach or other disinfectants might cure the coronavirus, quote, almost as a cleaning Those remarks set off a government-wide scramble to tell people not to ingest bleach and led to Trump telling aides on Friday afternoon that he would skip briefings this weekend, which he did. White House officials say privately they're considering getting rid of the events entirely. In recent days, aides have begun discussing adding more economic components to the virus response that would be separate from the daily briefing. 
He might appear with executives of small businesses beginning to reopen or with manufacturers of personal protective equipment. Advisors are also considering cutting the number of briefings where having the president attend less frequently, as well as discussing getting the president out on the road in the next few weeks so that it doesn't seem like he's cooped up in the White House. Number two. The Post, along with several other news outlets, reported early Sunday that White House officials are discussing possible replacements for Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar as frustrations mount in the West Wing over his handling of the coronavirus crisis and the uproar that followed his removal last week of the top vaccine official inside his agency. Five aides familiar with these talks who spoke on the condition of anonymity told us that the president has not weighed in, but the conversations are ongoing. But Trump did weigh in Sunday evening, saying any speculation he might fire Azar is, quote, fake news. During the past several weeks, Azar has rarely appeared at the daily White House news briefings, and he's been largely sidelined during the response, even though he is the health secretary. One senior administration official with knowledge of the discussions says Trump has no deep affection for Azar, but he's unlikely to change secretaries as the coronavirus rages, apparently because he is concerned about having a nominating fight in an election year on an issue, health care, that he and many of his advisors see as a political weakness. Number three. When the global pandemic made air travel essentially impossible, a group of Dutch high school students stranded in the Caribbean got home the old-fashioned way. They sailed a 200-foot schooner across the Atlantic. The 25 teenagers on board the Wild Swan sailed into the port of Harlingen and were reunited with their families on Sunday, about five weeks after leaving the island of St. Lucia. Many of the students had minimal sailing experience when they signed up for an educational program aboard the two-masted schooner, and they anticipated spending only a few weeks cruising the relatively calm waters of the Caribbean. But then, in mid-March, many islands began shutting down their ports to stop the spread of the coronavirus. When the wild swan arrived in St. Lucia, getting through customs proved impossible. Plans to sail to Cuba and then fly back from there to the Netherlands fell apart as more countries shut down their borders and grounded flights. Finally, it became clear that the only way for the teens and the dozen members of the crew and their three teachers to get home would be to embark on a nearly 4,500 nautical-mile journey across the Atlantic. On top of purchasing 400 pounds of vegetables for the voyage, the crew also had to stock up on warm clothes and foul-weather gear to prepare for the voyage. They made one stop in the Azores for supplies, but no one was allowed to leave the boat. Along the way, the teens gradually got past their seasickness, And they got to watch dolphins swim alongside the boat. Now they're home safely. And that's The Daily 202 for Monday, April 27th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you tomorrow.